We're continuing tonight in our discipleship study, Theology for Life, and we are focusing this evening on the doctrine of the Trinity. This is similar to a message that I brought a while back on this very subject, but it's going to go more in depth. We're still looking at some foundational issues of theology that are deep and wide and really set the tone for everything that we believe about the Bible and why it's so important to us to understand it and to be able to apply it to our lives and how does it have real-time relevance and application to us. So tonight we're going to do what we've been doing these last couple of weeks. We're going to look at a broad spectrum of scriptures and you might want to make note of them as we go along because I'm going to move kind of quickly. We might expect that God in revealing himself to us as the infinite, all-wise, omniscient, all-powerful creator, redeemer, and sustainer would communicate some things to us that are of infinite depth because they flow from his infinite mind. And while God expects us to comprehend what we need to comprehend so that we might know him and faithfully live for him, there are some things that go beyond what simple human understanding would help us comprehend, and I think the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those. And in Isaiah, God tells us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts, Isaiah 55 and verse 8. And nine. Kenneth Boer wrote, It follows from all this that we cannot and should not expect to understand the Bible exhaustively. If we could, the Bible would not be divine, but would be limited to human intelligence. A very important idea comes out of this, something over which many non Christians and even some Christians stumble. Since the Bible is an infinite revelation, it often brings the reader beyond the limit of his intelligence. Thankfully, the God-inspired word is also the God-illuminated word. The one who gave the word to human authors to record is the same one in the Holy Spirit who illuminates it to us and brings understanding to our minds. Historically, the church has always believed, the Christian church has always believed in the triunity of God, the tri-personality of God, the Trinity as we refer to it, which is exclusively a Christian doctrine, and it comes out of the truth of the Bible itself. The doctrine defined is that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and yet there is one God. So we can make this definitive statement. All Christians believe in the Trinity. If a person does not believe in the Trinity, then they cannot proclaim themselves to be a Christian because the doctrine of the Trinity comes from the Scripture and tells us something about the very character and the nature of God. And if you don't believe it, that puts you outside the boundaries of Orthodox faith. The Bible teaches the doctrine everywhere, and it flows out, as we're going to see tonight. And then we're going to go even deeper as we look at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit uh, in the weeks to come. 
And though the Bible teaches the truth of the triune God, both implicitly and in places explicitly, the development of the doctrine really came into focus when heretical people and teachers and groups rose to prominence early on in the life of the church. And as it often is with key doctrinal issues, uh, the church has been driven and was driven then to articulate what they believed in the face of people who were teaching things that were contrary, and it caused them to formally communicate what they thought about this very important doctrine. According to church history, uh, Tertullian in 215 AD was the first one to state this doctrine using the term Trinity. Considering the struggle that the early church went through, Walter Martin wrote this, as the New Testament was completed toward the close of the first century, the infant church was struggling for its life against old foes, persecution, and doctrinal error. On the one hand were the Roman Empire, Orthodox Judaism, and hostile pagan religions, and on the other hand were heresies and divisive doctrines. Early Christians were indeed in the midst of a perilous experiment. The Gnostic heresy, for example, which permeated Christendom, particularly in the lifetime of the apostles, drew strong condemnation in Paul's epistles to the Colossians and John's first epistle. Denying the deity of Christ, the Gnostics taught that he was inferior in nature to the Father and a type of super angel in a sense that emanated from God the Father. Following the Gnostics came such speculative theologians as Origen and Lucian of Antioch and Paul of Samosota, Sibelius and Arius of Alexandria. And each of these propagated their own nuance of something that was contrary to the Scripture. But perhaps the greatest test to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity uh, was the Arian heresy or the Arian controversy, which was followed by the Socinian heresy as well. So you see, false teaching is not anything new. But what happens is if God's people get slack about their understanding of the Bible and they don't have a depth enough of understanding about what is true to be able to identify something that is false, then false heretical teachings can creep into the church. And when the foundation is attacked, then that's when all sorts of problems begin in the church. There's problems today. Modalism is a teaching that is contrary to the doctrine of the Trinity that says that, uh, the, that God uh, presents himself in three modes, not distinct from one another. A common illustration of that would be that I am a friend, a father, a brother, or some variation thereof, but yet I'm the same person denying the distinctive nature of who God is. Arianism that I already uh, uh, referenced uh, denies the full deity of the Son and of the Spirit, that the Son was created and not divine. Then there's other uh, offshoots of some of this, uh, subordinationism that says that Jesus is somehow lesser than the Father, and the Holy Spirit, of course, comes after that. Or adoptionism that's been propagated even in recent centuries where they taught that Jesus was an ordinary man up until the time of his baptism, and then in his baptism something happened and God gave to the Son these supernatural powers. 
So there's all these ideas that float out there that came as challenges to the early church. They still exist today. They might not go by those technical names or people might not identify them as such, but they're still there and they're still false teaching. Now, the Nicene Creed articulated what the early church believed about God, including their belief about the Trinity. Now, as Baptists, we've always prided ourselves by saying that we're not creedalist, uh, meaning that the Bible is what we follow, so we're not boxing ourselves in with a human creed. But while it's true that historically we've not been creedalist as such, we have absolutely been a confessional people. Historically, we've been a confessional people because we've said what we believe about the Bible. We've brought that together in uh, unified statements of faith throughout history that have changed. And there have been different areas that we've addressed depending on what was going on in the culture and so forth. And the Nicene Creed was one of those efforts by the early church. And the word creed comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe. So this was the creed that the Nicenes uh, believed. And it was written in 325 AD. And then again, it was added to in 381 AD after some controversies arose after the na- about the nature of God. So the Nicene Creed could be called uh, the Nicene Constantinopian Creed because of the two places that they spoke into it. And I want to read this, and let's just think about this as a historical statement of faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. And he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. So it was an early attempt by the church to say, we believe these things. Later on was added, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, uh, Catholic in the sense of a lower uh, case C, but of course turned into the uppercase C for them. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So even the church began to get off on some tangents in their articulation of the doctrine as well. So while the Trinity as a word is never specifically used in the Scripture, the doctrine is clear when we begin to read and we begin to understand who God is. And I want to share what our Baptist Faith and Message 2000 Statement of Faith says about the triune God. And here it is. There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. 
And his perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him, we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. So we're going to take this sentence and unpack it in the remaining time that we have. God is one in essence, and he is three in person. God is one in essence, and he is three in person. Here's how we're going to unpack it. God is one, God is one in essence, and God is one in essence and three in person. So let's begin with the idea of what it means that God is one. When we say these things, we mean that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Not three gods, but one God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But each is God individually and together the one true God of the Bible. One definition of the Trinity is this. It's the union of three divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in one divinity, so that all three are God, one God, as to substance. But three persons, synonyms sometimes used are triunity or triune or even triality. B.B. Warfield said there's only one true God, but in the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons, the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. So God is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This is an idea that was presented early. And though that verse in particular is subject to various translations, I think what is being uniquely communicated here is who God is and that the Lord is our God and he is the Lord alone. That there is one God. There's not three gods in that sense. There is one God. That's why we call ourselves monotheists, that we believe in one God. But there's also a secondary emphasis in that very verse, and that is in the indivisibility of God. And this is where it gets hard for our human intellect to wrap our minds around it. But this is clear in most English translations. The confession clearly prepares the way for the later revelation of the Trinity, but how? Well, God is Elohim uh, in this sense in the Old Testament as a plural word, but he is one, and the word in the Hebrew there literally means one, but here's what it means. He is one in a collective sense. As such, it's also used of the union of Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 to describe two persons who are yet one flesh in their designation. So it's used in a collective sense like a, a cluster of grapes rather than an, in an absolute sense. Furthermore, the oneness of God is implied in the Old Testament passages that declare that there is only one God, there's only one Yahweh, there's only one Lord over his people. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 35 says, To you it was shown that you might know the Lord. He is God. And listen to this. There is no other besides him. 
Isaiah 46 and verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Isaiah 43 and verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God and there will be none after me. What about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4 and following? Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Or Paul's writing in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, God is one. This is, our, this is our starting point, that we are monotheists, that we believe that there is one God and one God only. But the second part of this here is that God is one in essence. Now let's think about this idea of essence here because in a theological sense, essence refers to the intrinsic, permanent, inseparable qualities that characterize or identify the being of God. So the very words triunity or trinity are used to refer to the fact that the Bible speaks of one God but attributes the characteristics of the one God to three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the doctrine of the Trinity states that there is one God who is one in essence, he's one in substance, but he is three in personality. So that doesn't mean there are three uh, independent gods existing as one, but three persons who are co-equal, co-eternal, inseparable, interdependent, and eternally united in one divine essence and being. This is very important. Taking the whole of Scripture, we can see that there's a stress throughout the Scripture about the, the unity of God. And that there is one divine being and one divine essence. And that the diversity of God in this unity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that comes up again and again um, in, in the passages of the Scripture, speaking of these persons in such a way that it ascribes undiminished deity and personality to each, while stressing that there is but one God in divine substance. So we might think about it this way. It is the doctrine of the Trinity that harmonizes and explains the idea of the oneness of God in Scripture. So you would think maybe, if you're just thinking about this logically, that the triunity of God would somehow diminish the oneness of God in Scripture in terms of Him being one in essence. But what happens actually is the triune nature of God and the distinctiveness of who He is and also the unity of who He is actually supports the idea that there is but one God. God is one in essence, and then God is one in essence, and God is three in person. 
In speaking of the triunity of God, the term person is not used in the same way that it would be uh, ordinarily used, in which it means an identity that is completely distinct from other persons. In other words, I'm a different person than you are, and you're a different person than the person that you're sitting by. And when we think persons, we think completely distinct and separate and not uh, unified together. So actually the word persons, if we're not careful, can actually distract from the unity of the Trinity. But according to the scriptures, the three persons of the Godhead are inseparable, interdependent, and eternally united in one divine being. The word person might not be the most ideal word, but it's a word that has been used historically to explain the Trinity because it helps us to put it into a category that we can actually at least begin to think about and, and put the pieces together. Some have opted for the term uh, subsistence, meaning the quality of existence, uh, meaning that God has three substances. Others have continued to use the word persons because they can't find a better term. Uh, but at any rate, the Old Testament implies that God is a triune being in a number of ways. Now, you're familiar with some of these, so this will come as no surprise to you. But uh, the word Elohim, that's translated as God, is the plural form of El. So while this is what is called a, a plural that is pointing to something, what it's pointing to is the power and the majesty of God, and it's laying the groundwork for the full expression of the triune God that we find by the time we get especially to the New Testament. And there are many instances when God uses the plural form to describe himself. Uh, Genesis 1 and verse 26, uh, Genesis 3 and verse uh, 22, Genesis 11 and verse 7, Isaiah 6 and verse 8. There are a number of places in Scripture where he uses this very term in communicating himself to us. But perhaps it's most clear in the creation account. Because in the creation account, both God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are seen as active in creation. We're not given the full commentary in those opening chapters of Genesis about how all that happened. We, we get some commentary on that when we get over into the Gospel of John, for example, and, and then even in the hymn to Christ in Colossians. And there are multiple passages in the New Testament that tell us that without Christ, nothing was made that was made. John lays that groundwork, of course, in, in the Gospel of John chapter 1. But we don't have that early on when we begin reading in, in Genesis. But when it's stated that God created the heavens and the earth and that the Holy Spirit moved over the earth, um, it's that picture of God superintending his creation. And then, as I said, we know that Jesus was the active agent in that, having eternally existed, and then making himself known through the very creation that he would come uh, to inhabit. And Isaiah, when he wrote about uh, the very subject, referred to the mighty God and the eternal Father in uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Several passages reveal a distinction of persons within the Godhead. In Psalms 110 and verse 1, David demonstrates that there is a distinction of persons between Lord, who is the one who is speaking, and then the one addressed, called by David as my Lord. So, in other words, David was indicating that the Messiah was no ordinary king, but he was the Lord himself. He was Adonai. He's my Lord. He is God himself. 
You see where this jumps off the rails when people start trying to pull apart the very deity of Jesus because that has salvation implications. It certainly has uh, eternal implications in that regard. The Jehovah's Witnesses would be the most famous example of that in our, in our modern context, but they're certainly not alone. And the Redeemer is, is distinguished from the Lord in Isaiah 59. The Lord is distinguished from the Lord in Hosea chapter 1 in verse 6 and 7, where the one speaking is Yahweh the Lord, yet there's a difference in the way it's communicated in verse 7, where he says, I will have compassion and deliver them by the Lord their God. So there's these, there are these distinctions when you start really doing a deep dive in it and unpacking the different verses and really reading what these words mean, implying to us something about the very nature of God. So here's what we can say, and we can say it confidently, even if we don't get all the different nuances. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. They are co-equal and co-eternal. God is one in essence, and he is three in person. And if we can get that, then the rest of it will come together for us. And then furthermore, the New Testament teaches us that these three names are not synonymous in the purest form of the word of a synonym, but they're speaking of three distinct but equal persons. The Father is called God. The Gospel of John, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, I mean, you name it. There's multiple examples where the Father is distinctly identified as God. And then Jesus Christ, the Son, is declared to be God. His deity is proven by the divine names that are given to him, by the works that he did that only God could do, by the entrustment of him uh, to him of future judgment, uh, by his divine attributes. Uh, There's so many things that show us who Jesus is, having been declared to be God. The Holy Spirit is recognized um, as God. By comparing Peter's comments in Acts chapter 5 and verse 3 and 4, we see that lying to the Holy Spirit is the equivalent of lying to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. He is the one who indwells us now as followers of Jesus. And uh, Charles Ryrie wrote regarding Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, he said in the Great Commission, he said, this passage best states both the oneness and threeness of God by associating equally the three persons and uniting them in one singular name. Other passages like Matthew chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 associate equally the persons of the Godhead. So it's clear that God is three in one and All of this is a deep dive on doctrine, but it has very clear implications for life. And here's why. It communicates to us the elements of the personality of God. It speaks to us about moral agency and intelligence and will and emotion and communication, all that exists within the eternal Godhead. So what are some of the applications of this doctrine for Christian experience and life? That's what I want to speak on these last few minutes that we have this evening for the Bible study. What are some applications of this doctrine for the Christian life? If in fact it is true, and it is biblically, 
then so what? What now? What do we do with it? How do we see it? Well, first of all, it says to us that God is a God of revelation and communion. He has made himself known and he desires to commune with us having been created in his image. God is light and one of the key functions of light of God as spirit is the idea of illumination. The act of revealing is as natural for God as it is for the sun, uh, S-U-N. Before the creation of any being or angel or human, there was the revelation and communication that was taking place, the communion that was existing between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when God willed it, that there would be a creation, that there would be a world, that there would be a universe... It was just as a natural outflow of the fact that God is a self-revelatory God and that God communes and relates to what he has created. So if God is a fellowship within himself, he can let that fellowship go out to his creatures and he can communicate himself to us within our capacity to receive. So I say it this way. We would not know what we know about God had God not communicated what God communicated to us. If God were not a self-revelatory God, we would not know this. And we talked about general revelation here a couple of weeks ago and how general revelation is enough to condemn, but it's not enough to convert. So God did not only communicate in general revelation, he communicated in special revelation. He communicated through his word and he communicated preeminently through his son. God has spoken in various times at various times and in various ways. But now, Hebrews chapter 1, he has communicated to us supremely, preeminently, the most important way of all, through his Son. So if God is a fellowship within himself, he is drawing us into that same fellowship, into life and communion with him. And that's an important point. Also, the Trinity is the basis for all true fellowship in the world. Since God is within himself, himself, a fellowship in a sense. It means that his moral creatures who have been created in his divine image and in the fullness of life would fellowship with one another. Now you can see where this all breaks down when we get on a Lone Ranger mentality of the Christian faith and we're out here free willing on our own and we're individuals who are seeking our own desires and we're not submitting ourselves to God, much less communing with the people of God as we should. So when we talk about uh, family and the family of God and the bride of Christ and the importance of Christian fellowship and the ecclesia, the people who have been identified as the people of God, we're just simply saying this is important because we see this within the very character and nature of God himself. And this is where our learning and our understanding about what the Christian faith really is can be strengthened and can really grow. And the Trinity teaches us that before the foundation of the world, God was having fellowship within his own being. That's why the Bible tells us that the Father loves the Son in John chapter 17. And in some sense, we can never understand that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have forever communicated with one another because our minds like stop. We have boundaries. We have time frames. And it just blows our mind to think that there was something long before there was something. That that there was this communication and, and this fellowship within the divine Godhead even before the world was. Francis Schaeffer emphasizes this very point in his books, and he says, 
that this is where the human desire for intimacy and communication comes from, that we were made for this. This is a part of our design, the image that God has placed in us, even in its broken and fallen state prior to our redemption. So now you see where this goes off the rails very easily. People look for fulfillment, and if they look in the wrong place, they're not going to find satisfaction. They look for intimacy, and they look for it in contrary and contradictory types of ways that are inconsistent with who God is. They try to find fulfillment in ways that are sinful and unholy, and there's all sorts of consequences that go along with that. But it explains a lot. Even if you think about something as front and center right now is the entire addiction crisis that we're dealing with in our state. The addiction is a symptom of the problem. And the problem is people are seeking something beyond themselves in the wrong place. It's an idolatrous pursuit of something that can never fulfill. But this is what the enemy does. He puts an idol up in front of us and he says, this is going to bring you satisfaction. It's going to bring you pleasure. It's going to bring you an escape. It's going to bring you momentary happiness. But what he never tells you is what's hiding behind the idol. And that's the consequences. That's the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus says there's only one way to find life, and that's through me, eternal life in him. So this has very real application for us, and it helps us to not look at people as, and think how foolish could they be, how blind could they be, how stupid could somebody be that they would get themselves caught up in something that is so ridiculous. Well, here's your reason. They're seeking fulfillment. That's the real problem. They're seeking intimacy. That's the real problem. They're seeking escape, some type of deliverance. That's the real problem. And where they seek it is the symptom. It's not the heart of the problem. It's the symptom. So we all know that God the Father is to be worshipped. But should we also worship God the Son? The answer to that is absolutely yes. If he's God, then he is rightly to be worshipped. And the Holy Spirit in the same way. Yes, if he's God, then he is rightly a part of our worship. Since all three persons of the Trinity are equally God, not only can we worship the triune God in that sense, but it's also appropriate for us to at times pray to any member of the Trinity. Now, Jesus instructed us, in the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, that we should pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name, hallowed be your name. And there are multiple passages of Scripture referring to Father. I think this is the uh, primary way that we address God is as Father. But then there are other instances where I think it's perfectly acceptable to appeal to Jesus on behalf of what he has done for us, or to appeal to the power of the Spirit to show us the, the word that we need to understand. Perhaps we're just in something simple like a morning Bible study and a, a phrase doesn't make real good sense to us and we're trying to gain understanding of it and we might just pray a simple prayer. Holy Spirit, you wrote this. Help me understand what you wrote. Help me to have a concept here of what you're communicating, what this means, how it applies to me, and how I can use it in my life. So Christian prayers are customarily made to the Father and in the name of the Son. 
But let's not imagine somehow that God is slighted if we direct our prayer to the Son or to the Spirit according to the particular need of the moment. There's absolutely no jealousy. There's no competition. There's no selfish positioning among the members of the triune Godhead. Now let's take this a step further and let's think about redemption for a moment. The Trinity helps us understand what really happened at the cross. Because you see, at the climax of Jesus' suffering, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what do these strange, tortured words mean? Well, we have a hint of the answer every other time that Jesus prayed, because he prayed to the Father. He prayed according to the will of the Father. But at the moment on the cross, what was happening is that Jesus was bearing the full weight of the sins of the world. And when all that evil and wretchedness was poured out upon him, he was experiencing what we deserved. And it's hard for us to fathom that God, who cannot look upon sin, would turn his back, as it were, on his only son. But sin, though not in ultimate reality, because it would have been suicide of the Godhead, created this situation within the Trinity where I think God is communicating to us the absolute ugliness and the horrific nature of our sin. He's communicating. I think it may even be as much for us as it is in the technical nature of what happened between God the Father and God the Son. I think it's an expression to us of the very weight that Jesus Christ had on him as our sins were laid on him. The idea that the wrath of God was being poured out on him, that the judgment of God for our sins was being poured out on him, and that God was broken in a sense over what was happening. The eternal son cries out to the father at the moment when the penalty of sin is laid upon him. And if it's to be asked, how could one man pay for the sins of the entire world? We find the answer in the doctrine of the Trinity, because only God is qualified to bear the sins of the whole world. So the Godhead have three primary, has three primary functions in relating to the world, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we, and we see um, cooperation and participation and uh, differences, but also similarities in how all that comes about. And we're going to see that more deeply as we go specifically in God the Father and then God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and think through what does that really mean. So I say to you tonight, the doctrine of the Trinity is essential to the Christian faith. Without it, we don't have Christianity. Wayne Grudem made some uh, really important points, I think, as it relates to the Trinity. He said, first of all, the Trinity is essential for our atonement. If Jesus is not fully God, it would be hard to see how his death was sufficient to cover our sins. So it's central to the atonement. It is essential for justification by faith. He says if Jesus is not God, it's hard to see how one could place their total faith in him. The Trinity is essential for worship. If Jesus is not fully God, it's hard to see how we could pray to him or how we could offer him worship. It's essential for our salvation because if Jesus were a created being, salvation would be based on the works of a created being and not on God alone. And it's essential for a personal God 
Because with no Trinity, there's no interpersonal relationships within the being of the Godhead that model his relationship with us. And it's essential for unity because if there's no perfect plurality and unity within the triune Godhead, it's hard to accept that there's a perfect unity within this world or the next that would be a possibility in our relationship with God. So the doctrine of the Trinity is at the heart of the Christian faith. And I would just encourage you just by way of a, a practicality of this, um, even to take, you can, and you can find it online if you don't have a copy of it somewhere, but you can take something as simple as the Baptist faith and message that I just shared with you earlier. And there is a whole section that is all scripture and it's supporting scripture for each article of faith. And you could go through and do a study on your own of each one of those supporting scriptures devotionally. And you could see the, the big picture of this as the Bible teaches it. And even use this in a devotional sense to say, God, I want to understand better who you are. I want to have a more complete picture of what the Trinity is and who you are as Father, Son, and Spirit. And I want to be able to worship you rightly and relate to you in a way that honors what your word tells me that you are. So my hope is in the, the weeks that follow as we break this down even more, is that we would see the particular roles that in the particular character, first of all, and then the particular roles that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have. Again, how does that apply to us in our faith? What does that mean for us? And then how do we live that out in a way that we're relating to God as we should we're protecting the truth of Scripture, we're communicating to other people, and we stay balanced in our understanding of what God's Word has communicated to us. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, as we continue on in this study of theology for life, there are some difficult subjects here. Uh, Lord, your ways are not our ways, and you are higher than us. And it'd be easy for us just to get overwhelmed with it and say, well, we're just going to keep a simple faith here and, and not really dig down deeper to see why we believe what we believe. But, Lord, I really think that that's one of the problems we have right now in the church is that there's so many people that are just satisfied with just surface-level living. They've never asked hard questions. They've never really gone deep in the Scripture and really tried to discern and understand what it means. And I thank you that you are the God who has revealed himself to us. You've not left us without a witness. You've given us your word, you've given us your son, you've given us your spirit, and we can relate directly to you with confidence and boldness because we know you by faith and we've been redeemed. So help us to that end. Uh, I pray that our thoughts would be uh, captured by your glory and by the magnitude of who you are. And as we think about those things, we would be drawn into an ever greater life of worship that exalts you in all things because you're worthy, you're deserving, and we love you and we thank you. So bless this week this, that, that is ahead of us and uh, draw us closer to you as we uh, draw closer to one another as well, as well. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.